Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm really excited today. This one is so, 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 so overdue because Woody is part of Team History Hack. We all remember Woody. He did all of the Band of Brothers stuff with us. He's a World War II guru with his own World War II TV. He's been working his nuts off of late. Are you knackered, Woody? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and France you know is pretty story. much back you know in lockdown, right? Yeah, it's just... Yeah, a bit busy, but anyway, it's good. Good to talk oh, to you. Yeah, and you can be the guest this time. You haven't got to be the one that, that knows everything. I'll do all the hard well, work. You can just tell us a story. How does that sound? That sounds really good, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, Woody wrote a book in 2013 called Angels of Mercy, um, and we're basically going to give you an outline of what it was about because it's a fantastic story and it's rightly getting some exciting attention at the moment behind the scenes which we won't say anything about but just keep our fingers crossed for you but when um, obviously we're talking world war ii because this is you yeah. when are we talking in world war ii and it's set in one single building basically isn't it so what what village are we in and why it's angleville au plan which mm-hmm. is just four or five miles inland from Utah Beach on the main road towards Carrington. So a little... So we're talking D-Day. We're talking D-Day. and we're Well, D-Day in the next 36 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the book does flesh out the story of the village in the war before that day and take the story a little bit afterwards. But it focuses on, obviously, the, the critical 48 hours of the invasion. Yeah, brilliant. Well, t- just tell us quickly a bit about the village and what they... And so they're under German occupation, obviously... Yeah, they are. And and they had an interesting time before D-Day because there was a bombing raid earlier in the year on the Sotvast uh, V-1 installation that was about 15 miles north. And long story short, as often was the case, there was a cloud cover and navigation issues and the bombs all fell on the village uh, of Angerville, 15 miles away from the intended target. And there's a really clear aerial photo showing all of these craters and these are big ones. These are big 500-pound bombs. Um, mercifully, there was no one killed in the village, but that was their, their sort of baptism of fire, if you like, because that area inland hadn't really been um, targeted in the pre-D-Day campaign because there was nothing of any significance mm. in the village. So that was their sort of awakening. Um, and then the arrival of German Georgian troops, Austrian troops in the village who were, by all accounts, not particularly friendly. So, um, you know, it starts off, the book before before the you know the invasion with those little details but it's a village of i mean it's you know it's about a dozen houses almost at its peak you know it's a tiny little village and it was just off the main road mm. and even myself coming to normandy since i was in my 20s it was one of those little side roads side roads that i never had inclination to turn up and then when i did then you, you kind of start realizing that this village had a little story to tell that's where the, the idea came from really it's insane. So it's Utah Beach, and that's what it all ties in with. So how first? So you're going to talk to us about two specific guys, aren't you? So who are they, and how do they end up on Utah Beach? Well, they say they're inland from Utah Beach, and their names are Robert Wright or Bob, as I call him, and Kenneth Moore, Ken, as I called him, and they were two medics in the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne, 20 years and 19 years old, respectively. And they were due to land on drop zone D, which was the inundated one sort of near near to Carrington. And it's the least talked about drop zone, really, because uh, the units landing there didn't have the same kind of exciting objectives of some on other, other drop zones where they had vital crossroads and bridges to knock out. These guys were kind of just land there and kill the Germans who are there and hope they don't kill you, if that sort of makes sense. So it didn't get kind of have that strategic look. Um, 
so it's been overlooked for years, really, that, that particular drop zone. And uh, their job as medics was simply to end up at a predetermined um, medical facility, if you like, with surgeons in place. And the medics are really only there to put bandage on and call doctor, really. They're not supposed to do much more than that. 20 and 90 years Well, they're babies, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, Ken had about three weeks training to be a medic. And interestingly, the reason he became a medic is they showed, this is a few months, so they showed his battalion one of those sort of black and white 16 millimeter sort of army training films of combat injuries. Mm. And it was quite graphic of, of earlier campaigns for us army. And the guys that didn't either vomit or faint were kind of taken to one side and said, you want to be a medic. And, and there was like, a, <laughs> you want to be as in you are. And that's how Ken ended up being a medic because he hadn't thrown up at this rather graphic film. That's quite a sketchy recruitment policy. It is. It's, it's slightly dubious. Bob, on the other hand, had actually, prior to World War II, um, hoped to have a career as a nurse, which in the kind of reverse sexism way of that era, that yeah. wasn't a thing boys did. That was a girl's thing. And, and, but he, did, he wanted to be a nurse. And then World War II happened. And when he enlisted, he volunteered to join the paratroops. He, he went straight into the medical branch and he got three months of training which sounds quite a lot, but then a lot of that is going to be, you know, lots of boring lectures and things, you know, three, I mean, ask a doctor how much they would learn in three months. And it's, it's essentially it's, first aid, isn't it? You get a first aid it's, course it's and then you get thrown first in. Aid kit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're only really meant to be, as I said earlier, in, in as assistants to properly trained surgeons who are jumping in with the battalion. But of course, as we all know, with the D-Day jumps, everybody got scattered and everybody was in the wrong place and people find, found themselves on their own having to do all sorts of things above and beyond their pay grade, which is exactly what happened to these two young guys in the village of Angerville. Um, Just sidebar, where are they born? Where are they from in America? Ken is from California, Sonoma County, wine country. Mm-hmm. And Bob is from Columbus, Ohio. So oh, wow. semi-rural, but quite near a city. Um, yeah. But a yeah. long, long way from Normandy. Um, how, so how do they get to the village then? Well, the, the Ken had the more harrowing start because mm. the aircraft he was in took a hit or two and, um, and others in the same flight were, were hit because this was a lot of the last jumps of D-Day and the German flak. Uh, positions were kind of ready for them by that point. So he sees aircraft being hit and burning and what have you. And he jumped out and landed in about four foot of water because it's the the flooded area and had to decide very, very quickly whether or not to try and retain the plasma bag he jumped with. It was a a leg bag full of plasma, which Mm. was pulling him under the water or sort of cut it loose. And he cut it loose in order to stop himself drowning and uh and wished he hadn't later on because he would have lovely loved to have had that plasma when things you know got serious later on so that was a pretty harrowing start and not 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 untypical of what happened to a lot of the guys on that drop zone being that it was half of it was underwater they a lot of them are landing in the water and you know landing with up to 90 or 100 pounds of gear strapped to you and uh it's it's a it's a tricky start to say the least and what about bob Bob had a, sli- a drier start, um, mm. although he did actually land right near a little stream. But he was on uh, further in, uh, in land away from the flooded area, and he was you know, quite close to Angervillo Plant Church. In fact, uh, he's only five foot four. Bob, that was his thing. So if he had landed in the water, he'd have fared less well than Ken did. Ken was six foot two, so they were slightly different in um, in, in height. <laughs> There's nothing um, wrong with being five foot four, would he? No, I mean, of course not. I'm not, I'm not casting any negativity there. I'm just saying he was a shorter guy. Um, and he happened to see the church tower of Angerville on a bit of high ground, I don't know, sort of 500 yards away as the crow flies, but actually to get there was hedgerows and creeks and this, that and the other. And uh, they weren't particularly heading for the church. It was just that it was a bit of high ground. That it was something to aim for. And the two guys ended up there coming at the, direct, at the church from different directions and found that it was in the middle of a, of a, of a hot zone, if you like. And, um, and drop zone D uh, was, was under fire. I mean, there were these German-Georgian troops. So later on, you have German Fallschirmjäger, so German parachute troops coming in from Carenton, and it got very traumatic. And the, the, they say that the little square in Angleville uh, changed hands seven or eight, nine times on D-Day. Um, 
I don't know that it actually changed hands so much as was never really firmly in anybody's yeah. hands. A... Just different people on top at different times. Yeah. Um, and further down towards the intended um, battalion objective, which was um, uh, another little village called Oat Advil, was the the, uh, the red the battalion colonel, uh, Colonel Ballard, and he was already sustaining casualties because of there were men who had uh, in the aircraft that were hit flying over. So there were there were jump casualties. There were men who were coming out of the water. There were others under fire, and he sent another officer under his command called Allworth to try and set up an aid station. Um, to, to deal with the wounded. But in the meantime, Bob and Ken, these 20 and 19 year old kids had, had come across this church and it's the 11th century church with big thick walls and, and lots of wooden pews inside. And they thought, Hey, why don't we start putting casualties in there and, and go from that. And in fact, Ken brought wounded men with him from the drop zone. So he had already started treating men before they even found the church. And this is where we get to the crux of your book. I, I've got it. Well, how did you come up with this idea? Oh, well, you see, it was a stop I've been doing on my tours. I'm, I'm a battlefield guide, as you know, and I'd been touring uh, since sort of 2002 here. And, you'd, you know, as a, as a guide, you're doing the, the big high spots, like, you, like in any battlefield, like the Somme or Ypres. Yeah, there's those famous few places that everyone wants to go and see. So in, in this area for the American Airborne, it's Santa Mary Glees, mm. Utah Beach, so on. And you're looking for little things that, that will fill in the gaps, if you like. Go to do more human interest stuff. And, uh, and in 2002, a monument was put up in Angerville to these two medics. I got to know the mayor, Daniel Omchat, who was a lovely guy. And I realized that no one had actually put this story together beyond a very bare outline they printed on one piece of paper that they gave away from inside the church in English and in French about these two men who had been contacted by the villagers and they'd both come back to Normandy over the years. But I thought, no, I realized no one had fleshed the story out and actually put the, you know, the beginning, the middle and the end to it. And, and I did it. I just, I decided to do it. And over the years, I put the story together first for my tours and then mm. later and not just my tours i had people who worked for me at the time for, for, for their tours as well and then um i thought it actually needs cataloging and i by various contacts and people who had some information the mayor daniel about 10 years earlier he had interviewed some of the villagers on old crunky old cassettes and they were speaking really hard to understand patois slang french so i had to replay these tapes back and again and again and again and with the help of various people and translators and my own knowledge we managed to bash out what they actually said and it was gold it was gold i mean civilian accounts and then i had the accounts from the paratroopers i put a plea out to all my historian friends anybody know anybody was treated at the church found a few people i knew both bob and ken the two medics they provided information for me and and then then I started putting them together. And what worked wonderfully, which might not have done, is the civilian accounts tied up very nicely with the American accounts, you know, to the point where a civilian woman in a house, her account of encountering a, her, her, her uh, recollections of encountering a paratroopers coming into her courtyard matched up exactly with an account by an American of going into a courtyard of a French house. And you just realize, hang on, that's the same story. And how unusual it is to be able to put those two stories together because, you know, you know yourself, Alex, with your First World War stuff, mm. meshing civilian and military accounts, it, it can be really hard. Um, What's brilliant you is you've crossed, might... like, in not only national boundaries by doing the French and the American, but you've crossed the language barrier as well, which is why it's, I mean, it is a complete story. Well, yeah, I think so. And, I, you know, I... I've had people say you've kind of written the definitive account there, Paul. And I go, well, I, I think in the sense that with all the information that could have been found, like there's no one else who could find it. There's nothing else to be found really. I mean, yeah. I put a plea out. Um, I'm sure people could find maybe interpret it in a different way or put into more context or discover some more er archive or something. But yeah, I was just very lucky that no one had done it before me. And with these civilian accounts and American accounts, it all just came together. And I'm other authors I know have said some books you have to labor over and some wrote, wrote themselves. And this one is my, it's my only one. I hasten to add mm. kind of wrote itself because it just all gelled together perfectly. And, uh, uh, which is cool. I mean, because you, and then, as you say, to get both sides of the same story, 
um, was really cool. Yeah, it's insane. It's brilliant. Um, so tell us then about, did, so did you know them, Bob and Ken? I, well, Ken I never actually met in person. No, yeah. I, he'd been to Normandy and then the times I was available, he wasn't. He didn't come to Normandy as often as Bob. I met many times and spent lots of time with But Ken, yeah. I had done Skype interviews and telephone calls and emails and and funny enough, I always have this fond memory of his emails because he was one of those guys who would send those forwarded emails that have been forwarded a hundred times full of viruses. Yeah. So I have to call him <laughs> up and say, Ken, you've just sent me another virus. And he'd go, what's that then? He said, yeah, well, just don't. Anyway, you know, that, you know, so my memory of him is just having to overcome this old man dealing with modern 21st century computer technology. But how, how great it was that back there was that period when technology that I had was able to connect with veterans. Now, young, younger people writing about World War II veterans, they've, they've mostly gone now. Mm. So to have veterans who would email you back, I mean, how cool is that? That was you know, only oh, 10 years ago, really. It is. It's brilliant. So tell us, tell everyone then, what did they tell you about that day? Tell us, talk us through their version of events. Well, that was the thing because they're very different people. Ken, yeah. you had to pull everything out like pulling teeth. Mm. Um, and and I'd have to do it in a kind of a roundabout way and ask him to talk about other people and hope he would mention himself. Bob was a little bit more um, in the right mood to talk about his own experiences, although in a very humble way. They both you know, kept playing down what they did, as most veterans do, and I just did it. It was my job and those sorts of things. Um, so it was a combination of live interviews with Bob. I also had uh, an older interview with Bob by an American historian called Mark Bando, who's written numerous books about the 101st Dev, and he'd interviewed Bob on camera all in the early 90s. So this was when Bob was only in his, I don't know, 60s or 70s, mm. like an hour and a half long interview when he's very, very lucid, very, very um, um, chatty. And that formed, that fleshed out what I needed. And then I could ask further questions based on what they said. Um, so it was a very bit by bit you get a little bit here a little bit there then then you ask a second question another recollection comes back and so i know some people who interview you know do one long interview with a veteran and have to work with that i i had like a year of back and forth and conversations and little snippets and and ken's next door neighbor used to go and take his questions around when she kind of came around with um you know food for him she'd go do him like a you know a casserole or something so yeah paul said just ask you uh do you remember whether you were on the left side of the village or the right side of it they go uh, left side and that would just be one little question that i'd get ticked off <laughs> and then, so it was a very odd way of putting it together but um as i say it all came together very well and 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 essentially the story they told me if we you know go back to d-day is they 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 came at this church from separate directions they recognized it as being a suitable place to treat wounded Bob had a little foot square red cross flag in his pack, which in the, the painting of Angerville plan someone did where the flag is like eight foot by 10 foot across. And I thought, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Probably not. It was just a little, like a tea towel with a cross on it. Um, and he just kind of tip pinned it to the door of the church and said, that's it. It's an aid station. And then over the next 36 hours, about 80 wounded men, from both sides went through their hands went through their care and were treated which was absolutely insane and what drew me to the story and i think you know you're like myself alex you like the humanity behind stories as well as the which battalion moved over which sector at which hour that bit yeah. that stuff's cool it's that human interest stuff and bob and ken had this absolute strict undertaking that they would treat anybody in need of care be they friend or enemy weapons didn't come inside the church they decided that very early on that they would have stacked the weapons up outside and uh, you know bob would say he said it it, it, it was the church, what we were doing was in the church was all concerned with the dead and the dying not the winning or the losing that could be done by other people we are just here to, to save lives and and those kind of things and that attitude is what really drew me in and have to say is what has drawn people into the story because it's become a very popular site on tours, not just because of my book, by, by no means. Other tour companies discovered the story. They got Bob and Ken had both come to Normandy. There was a documentary made in the States, which, you know, pushed a story out. It made various anniversary newspaper, you know, D-Day specials. So it's become quite a big place. 
and um and the humanity is the, is the angle that that gets across that comes across and and you you're looking for that i am to, because always when you're telling the story of D-Day, there's lots and lots of, and this regiment came ashore behind that regiment and it's numbers. And, and, and honestly, people can't relate to 156,000 men coming across in 6,000 ships. It's too big. They naturally start to glaze over, don't they? Yeah. It's, it's, so especially in the touring environment, you need something that puts people right there in the place. And the thing about the church is for those who haven't been there, and obviously this year is a bit of a tricky one for travel. There are bloodstains on the wooden pews from where wounded men were laid. There is an impact in one of the stones where a mortar shell that came through the roof that hit the ground. Ken saw it, thought, that's it, we're all a goner, and it didn't go off. For whatever reason, it was dard or sabotaged by some brave worker in a factory, whatever, it didn't go off. Ken picked it up, threw it out the window of the church. All the windows of the church were blown out in the fighting, and you can still see that impact on the ground, and you can see the hole in the roof above it where the shell came through. I mean, you couldn't make that, you couldn't contrive that, to find that kind of story in a location where you can see it with your own eyes, because you don't get that very often. As I say, I, I was so lucky that no one else had done the story, because with that kind of, in-house detail i can't believe no one else had bothered to do it but hey i was the one who did it so that's good yeah um, it sounds like you know when you're saying about books writing themselves the eaton book did that and right. literally all i had to do was shuffle the stories and put them in order I mean, obviously there's more to it than that and it's a labor of love and you end up tearing your hair out but there was never any question of what needed to go in and what what was there to go in because it was just just kept presenting itself to you Absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah, that's it. And, and particularly for me, the, as, as interesting as it was um, putting down Bob and Ken's stories, and even today you can just search Angavillo Plan Medics, and there's all sorts of websites and little things come up and tributes, which is fantastic. It was putting a name and a backstory to the three uh, paratroopers who died in the church because their wounds were so horrific, uh, because uh, as we confirm, they've only got bandages they're not fully trained and men are coming in with wounds that are way way more serious than they can deal with and 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 the three the three men who died henry ostrovsky charlie ray johnson and james luce um i i put their their stories in as as their own chapter and Mm -hmm. and i made good friends with with the ostrovsky family um and and the amazing story there, by the way, I'm not going to give all the stuff away from the book. No, you mustn't, because everyone's got to read this, because it's no. not the same. I mean, you're doing a great job of telling us about it, but it's not the same. Well, I, I, I will tell a couple of things that I couldn't put in a book, yeah. um, because uh, just little extra details. Um, so Henry Ostrovsky was ni- another 19-year-old paratrooper, was wounded about a mile away from the church. And Ken had been using a farm cart he found in the, in the farm opposite the uh, the church in the village to go and pick up wounded from up to about a mile away with just his Red Cross armband. And he would walk through the battlefields. And because it, by this point, it was mostly Falschermäger, German opponents, the both sides would actually stop as they saw the medic go through and then start shooting other again when he came back because the Falschermäger being paratroopers had, a, had an esprit de corps. In fact, their commanding officer, von der Heidt, mm. um, who was a law professor at Columbia in the, in, in the USA before the war. So he spoke English, he understood Americans, he had a real... And he's not, yeah, he's not a Heydrich kind of guy. He's a noble German who just, you know, is fighting for for, uh, uh, his men. And and so he he instilled in his men this, you know, you don't shoot at medics, don't don't kill civilians. And and that's their story. And so anyway, Ken found Henry. And the bit I didn't say in the book is that Henry's face had been pretty much taken off by a mortar shell. Mm. Um, I just said he was wounded. And uh, Ken put him on his cart, put him back to the church and, 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 and Bob, the senior medic, with remember his three months training, yeah. looked at Henry and realized he wasn't going to make it. And, and Bob could have sat Henry with all the other wounded men who had been putting on the pews. And when you see the church, the pews are tiny, right? You know, you, fitting 10, 10 people in there wounded, you could barely fit five in today. And you, they, they were cramming them in like sardines. Mm. But Bob, Ken reali- sorry, Bob realized if he'd put Ostrowski there with the other guys, they were going to just have to sit and watch him die because that was what was going to happen. So he kicked in the door of the sacristy behind the altar and put Henry in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, on a kind of 
cupboard behind there, where over the next few hours, he literally screamed himself to death. Oh, God. And I couldn't put that in the book because I knew no. the family would read it. But I don't think they'll, because they're in the middle of um, the USA, I don't know that they'll discover your, your podcast, uh, mm. which is just as well in, this, in that sense. And, and Bob would tell me how, because he had morphine. They had morphine. When he heard Henry scream, he would walk over towards the door and think, I'll give that guy some morphine. And then his training kicked in. He goes, no, no, morphine is for the living. I could, I've only got a little bit of this. The morphine is to keep men who are going to survive alive. And can you imagine, this is what drew me in, being a 20-year-old kid. and Making that are, decision. Yeah, you are, you, are, you are overseeing someone's death that you could make more comfortable, but you can't because you've only got limited morphine. And you think, you know, you, you asked me at the beginning of this, I mean, before you went, you know, you started recording, we're talking about mm. how busy our days are. And you go, yeah, shit, what we're doing is nothing. You know, yeah, worries us with our headsets. There, you know, just because someone hasn't answered my email today, you know, just, yeah. you know, and then you realize what these guys went. And anyway, Henry died eventually. And, uh, I, you know, I have copies of his letters home, this, that, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and, and one of his friends, um, wrote to Henry's twin. Henry had a twin who was in the Pacific campaign. He was, uh, air force or something and explained what happened to Henry without going into any graphic details, just, you know, how he'd lost his life. And then John, the twin, who came back from the, the war, survived the war. The first thing he did in, in Philadelphia, which is where Henry from, incidentally, Henry Ostrowski was good friends with Bill Garnier and Babe Perfon, bringing it back to our oh, no way. podcast of, of March, which seems yep. like an eternity ago now. Um, they, knew, they were friends, same part of South Philly. So John got off the bus, and before going and seeing his own family, he went to see Henry because um, Henry had a, girl, a girlfriend called Laura, but it was like this, and I've got their letters, Henry and Laura, it's like they really want to go stay serious, but they don't really think they should because there's a war on. And he, he kind of is in letters, he's saying, he's like, people are getting married these days. And I don't know, what do you think? And she, and anyway, her family say, no, you're not going to, you're not going to have anything to do with this paratrooper. And, and his letters to her stop because we know he died in a church, but she doesn't know. And she has no contact with his family because they didn't anyway. So John, the twin comes back from the war, goes to visit Laura, the twin, the, his twins, nearly girlfriend and explains what he'd found out about his twin, her boyfriend's death. And, and imagine, imagine that situation. Imagine how they would be comforting each other and all this. And then I'm getting this story from, from, uh, the twins son. And, and then he said, of course, eventually they fell in love the, the Laura married her late boyfriend's brother no way. And named the son Henry who there was the Henry I was because I was getting completely confused because I was talking to a Henry Ostrowski who was John Ostrowski's son but named after the Henry that died and it was my brain was exploding but when it all came together you realized oh god you named your you you're named after your uncle who you never met oh my god um and you know, that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, when, when the family, when Ostrovsky's family told me how happy they were that their, their, their relative story had been told in the book. And yeah, I could have got into a bit more detail about how horrific it was, but I didn't. You don't need that's to, when you do go, you? That's when you go, yeah, I don't care whether anyone else buys it. You know, like with Bob. Bob himself, the medic, I'm not kind of showing off here, but his last couple of years, he was, he was really succumbing to Alzheimer's and what have you. And he would, you know, had a little stroller thing that he'd walk around his house. And in his basket on the front, he had a copy of my book. Mm. He would kind of pick up and look at the pictures all the time. And his son would tell me how, 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 how much enjoyment he got from looking at the photos of his buddies. And at this point, he wasn't really talking much anymore. And you go, how, 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 how cool of a reward is that, you know? Yeah. So what, what well, you say, who cares if no one buys it? Exactly. So, so, and there's more of that. You know, the other guy, I won't tell the other story. There's Charlie Ray Johnson, James Luce, the other two men in there. And, you know, when people tackle Normandy and there are some amazing books come out the last couple of years by Caddick Adams and Hollands, all those incredible guys. And, and, you know, but they're covering often big picture stuff, which is fantastic. But I just talked about one village of about 40 people and about 10 different paratroopers over the whole, over the course of the book. But it means, 
you're going into a level of detail that means by the end of it, theoretically, the reader feels they knew the people and they feel mm. they, they have kind of been on a journey. Well, like with your Eton book, that yeah. you know, a few, you, you can learn a lot more about uh, via the eyes of a few people than you can by trying to read about 1,400 guys in the regiment. It doesn't, you know... Yeah, well, you know what James is doing since we did Band of Brothers and talked about following individuals and people and looking at smaller. He's doing a start to finish, isn't he? Following he is. He's doing a Rangers yeah. book, yeah. So yeah. That's, which that's that's apparently great. is our fault yeah, <laughs> because well, of the whole Band of Brothers thing. As, as long as we get a nice thank you, that's, that's yeah. Okay. yeah. As long no. as there's gin in it at some point. For planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Exactly, yeah. You said um, you spoke to some of the people that survived. I'm really interested. What did they tell you? What was their perception of Bob and Ken on that well, day? Well, I, 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 I spoke, I got accounts of people who'd survived, but yeah. the, the particular accounts I got, they'd actually died before I came, El, Elroy Hugh was one of them. So I, his son, Jim, gave me, he, his father had written his memoirs down. Yeah. Um, so I had the full story about how it was to survive there, uh, but I didn't meet any. In fact, one of the very sad, I, I'm, I'm going to answer the, a question you didn't ha- ask, but I'm going to yeah. go in a politician's way and answer something different. Bob, because um, Bob was a, not just a medic in Normandy. He went on to Market Garden and, and the island near Nijmegen. And the Ardennes, you know, Baston doing exactly the kind of same, same kind of stuff as Doc Rowe did in the Band of Brothers, all the way through the end of the war, survived all the way through. One silver star, three bronze stars. Ken survived all the way through as well. Um, now, Bob went to pretty much every 101st or 501st reunion he could go to after war because he was hoping to meet one of the men he'd saved mm. over the course of the war. Not in any kind of, a, you know, you owe me a beer kind of way, but just that sense of closure yeah and interestingly he never never met anybody he treated in the war or at least they that they could kind of double confirm because if you're lying on a stretcher as a wounded guy you're not necessarily going to make take a note of the guy who comes over and jabs a morphine syrette in you and you know you you've got other things to think about like surviving but bob never met anybody who he treated in the war and that's one of the things that has dawned on me since I did the book, because it's, if you'd interviewed me just a few months after I did it, I wouldn't have had half the, the, um, the answers because it's taken a few years for it all to, you know, bubble and simmer. And, yeah. and I realized that cause I was, I was frustrated when I wrote it, that I didn't get many of the names of the guys who was, who were treated of the 80 or so guys in the church, in the church. I got about five or six names plus, Fortunately, the three guys who died, that, that came together quite well. But that's like 15% of the guys who were treated. And I was frustrated. Then I realized, shit, Woody, you fool. Those guys went on through three or four more campaigns and half of them probably didn't survive the war. And that's the realization that you patch up a guy in combat to be in the face of it again in the next campaign. And yeah. that's why I've spoken to a lot, because I've done lots of, I've taken people to the church and done really long versions of stories. If they're, if they're doctors or medics or nurses or paramedics, because they completely get that idea of, of triage and, and, and choosing who's going to, not choosing who's going to survive, but, but focusing on those going to survive and making no decisions. And, and they get it. They get all that. And the realization that if you're working in an ER department in a hospital and a, someone comes in after a horrific car wreck, 
you're really unlikely to see them come in again six months later in another horrific car wreck and then six months later in another horrific car wreck. But in World War II, with the campaigns these guys went through, there's a lot of chance that you're going to get come, you're going to get hit again. I mean, look, the, the Purple Hearts that were awarded yeah. to units like the 101st, the 1st Infantry, and of course, us Brits, we didn't have that Purple Heart equivalent. So it's harder for us, as you know, to trace wounds because they didn't get recorded with that very precise allocation of a medal. But, and that's why I didn't find more men who survived the church because they had died during the war. And, yeah. But that only took me years after writing the book that that was why I didn't find them because they just went back in the line again yeah. and losses those guys face. You know what it's, you know, you, you know, you how it was in the Ardennes for the 101st and, and in the yeah. market garden, these guys went and through the mill. So Bob never, as I say, confirmed Bob never met anybody who he'd saved in the war. And that caused him much um, trauma. He, he, he kind of went through this, what was it all worth it? And that's why I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to kind of share some of those stuff that Bob and Ken shared after the book came out yeah rather than just put say to you today what's already in the book and uh you know and ken had a regret for example that there were two germans in the uh, in the church tower that came down on mm-hmm. day two and no one you know has, has idea why they hadn't come down further earlier and they were probably artillery spotters and the, the, the exciting thing is and the, and the humanitarian side of it is these two german kids volunteered to help out and they they helped and assisted Bob and Ken in giving water and adjusting yeah. tourniquets. But Ken had felt such a uh, connection and affinity with these two German kids that when the village was liberated, and it was liberated by Colonel Sink and the 506, and the first two men through the door of the, the church upon liberation were two individuals by the name of Dick Winters and Carl <laughs> Wood Lipton. Uh, yeah. Uh, slightly famous, which I didn't actually stress in my book. I didn't want to go on about it. Oh, yeah. the Easy Company chapter, make in another Band of Brothers book. I just kind of downplayed that. Anyway, Ken took these two German kids off to the front line and said, go on, try and, uh, try and uh, get back to your lines. And I put a request in German in a few German newspapers back in 2012, the year before the book came out, saying, mm. anybody know, any, anybody, anybody heard a story from a veteran about, you know, a German veteran about being in a church tower above an aid station in Normandy and seeing this, these medics working. I was, very, I was very vague. Yeah. And no one came back. No, no, now, maybe the right people didn't read the newspaper articles, or more likely, those two German kids went back in the line and got killed another, a day later. Mm. So Ken's regret was he just should have kept them prisoner, kept them, put them in the POW cage like the others, almost certainly guarantee their survival. And that's that interesting thing of that these guys, as medics, they, 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 they had a lot of thought about loss and life and, and living and survival. And they, they both were quite philosophical as they got older and, um, you know, and, and looked on these things and had these regrets. And, and, and Bob, Charlie Ray Johnson, this is another bit that's not in the book, who is one, the second guy who died. Uh, a few years ago, when, obviously when Bob was still alive, he went to a reunion somewhere or an event somewhere and was talking about Charlie, injury, Charlie Ray Johnson's injuries. And he was hit in the head. Well, he was hit in the body first, then hit in the head by a single round. And, and Bob described these injuries to a doctor, a current modern you know, doctor. Yeah. The doctor said, Oh, well, I'm sure if we got him to a proper, you know, he'd have survived. That sounds like it was, and he, and he, and he kind of diagnosed it. Um, and Bob then felt really bad that this guy could have been saved had he had another procedure. And I, I don't know who that doctor was. And I, if I could go find that doctor and say, and what slap were you him. Doing? What were you yeah. doing? <laughs> Just... You were talking to an old man with PTSD. Don't yeah. tell me one of the men he could have. You know, he he lost. You tell him he did everything survived. he could. So and leave it yeah. at that. So the very last time I saw Bob, and I honestly forget which year it was now, 2011, 2012. I, I don't know. Because um, he didn't travel the last few years because of health issues. Where he'd been able to go back to church before that and, and, and embrace the, the, the fact that people would thank him for saving lives. He was very humble. He didn't kind of shout about it, but he would, you could see him pr- proud. The last time, and I was privileged to be the one who escorted him in the church, he walked up the altar near where Charlie Johnson, Charlie Johnson died, and he, and he just 
he just kind of went, he just started bursting into tears and going, no, how could have done more? I could have done more. And I'm going, Bob, you know, because you, you don't want to be angry with him, but he was kind of amazed. You go, Bob, you, you know, there's, there's 79 other men who you did save. So, yeah. you know, just, but you can't tell a guy to, you know, ignore this feeling that's been building for, at this point, whatever it was, 66 years or something. Yeah. You can, however, if you're do- if you're out there, that doctor, I shake my fist at you. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I maybe the story got told to me in a different kind of way, and maybe the doctor wasn't doing it in that kind of way. But honestly, you know, the 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 responsibility of of, a, of seeing people with PTSD and and understanding, you know, that's that comes with interviewing veterans. And you know, I, I get I get a little bit of criticism because I'm not a qualified historian. You know, I left the joint. Uh, school at 16 and stuff but i've interviewed and spoken to 2000 world war ii veterans over the years and you learn very quickly how to ask questions and what not to say and how to steer things along and i may not have been trained to do that but i know there's plenty of historians without enough basic humanity who haven't got a clue how to talk to veterans so don't put yourself down yeah and i I got quite good at it by the end um Mm. and and you know so yeah bob and ken I can honestly say, I mean, I say I never met Ken, but their, their, their influence on my life is something that I'll carry with me till I'm, you know, however old I want to end up being, you know, and, and, uh, and Bob incidentally, and this is quite well known on the internet, Bob, Bob's ashes or half of them were scattered in the, in the churchyard at Angabillo plan. And uh, there's a little marker there indicating uh, which, which which broke all the laws in France because you're not meant to bury a non-Catholic, non non Frenchman. Anyway, we did it anyway, and no one Never. cared. Yeah, um, but it's one I of those times where really... you go just just look the other way. Yeah, if I if I get if I get to the if there's a, if there's a guard and I get there and and they they're listing through my demeanours. And yeah. they say, well, you're a part of an illegal burial of a veteran's ashes. I'll go. Yeah, really? That's all you've got. If that's all they've got against me, you know, I'll be yeah, I'll, good. At I'll that, take you know? that. I'll take that. But I know that when I'm when I'm there on a tour, and of course there's been no uh, uh, at this point, end of September, I should have done about 120 battlefield tours by that by now. I've done six this. Uh, oh, it's so depressing, this isn't year. it? It's been terrible. Um, but I know that when I'm telling the story, Bob's ashes are out there. But you know, he's kind of out there in the presence of you know. So I'm thinking to myself, make sure you tell it right, Paul. And and Ken would say to me, when I put the phone down to Ken. He would say, don't forget to tell them that we were shit scared all the time, Paul. Yeah. Don't let them think that we were cruising through this in in control. We were shit scared all the time, and we were completely out of our depth. And he said the way you structured it in the book made it look like we knew what we were doing. We yeah. we knew what we were doing on an individual case basis, but we didn't have we didn't know that it was going to be thirty six hours. We didn't know the relief was going to come. This that yeah, you know, they didn't know. Um. So yeah, and the other another little thing I'm going to tell you because I'm you've got me on a roll now. Do it is is and there was a German officer who went in there for treatment. That was all exciting as well. And 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 Bob, and the Germans had control control of the village at this time. And 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 even though the Germans have got their own machine guns and mortars set up outside, and Bob could have been shot. Bob didn't let the German come in unless he took his pistol belt off. And you're going, yeah, that German could have just shot you. Cause yeah, <laughs> this is they, a teenager essentially saying, yeah. "This is how it's going to be." To a guy with a gun. Yeah. And uh, with lots of other guys behind him with bigger guns. And he stood up in a broad doorway and said, you're not coming in. And this guy had an, in, you know, a, a, as Bob would say, a life-changing injury. It was in the groinal area. Oh, no. And eventually the guy slipped off his pistol belt and came in and, and Bob treated him. He said, that's it. I'm not, because he said, Bob squared up to him. He said, if you, it, it's my rule. He said, unless you've got another aid station you can go to. <laughs> um, if and you ever want to use it again, you play by my rules. Yeah. And, 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 and the, 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 the counterpoint of that, which I think is so wonderful, is when the village is, the village is liberated and, and the arrival of the help comes from Utah Beach a few miles when all the surviving wounded get taken away to a proper hospital and the, 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 the three guys that had died in the church, in fact, one may have died after he was near to death, may have died about a mile away. But the two that had died, um, Johnson and Ostrovsky, They'd been buried in like a shallow graves under the yew trees. They were being taken away. But an American 101st Airborne artillery officer came up and wanted to use the tower of the church to direct artillery fire on the now retreating Falschermager towards Carrington. Mm. But at this point, the aid station is still, you know, functioning. There's still a Red Cross 
uh, flag on it. There's still people being coming in and out. And Bob said, no, 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 you're not, you're not coming inside the church until it is ended as an aid station because the Germans respected its neutrality. And if we're going to win this war, we must respect exactly the same rules. And this, German, this artillery officer, this American artillery officer, was demanding access to the church. And it probably would have given his guns an advantage. But there are rules, and the rules were that it's a narrow neutral location. So this officer, never found out who he was, went off and like a little girl blabbed to Colonel Ballard, this nasty medic wouldn't let me inside the church. <laughs> this nasty, t-, you know, because Bob is a corporal, a T5, it's a technical yeah. And then, and the ballard, the colonel said, yeah, what, you know, what were you doing? He said, well, I wanted to get my, my spotters in the church, but it was still an ice station. He said, yeah, you, 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 you're, you're in the wrong there, you know, yeah. and Bob got in no trouble. But, but to stand up that way as a 20, you know, 19, 20 year old medics, that's where you get the respect from them, for them is that, that we're medics. We have a duty to be fair to everybody and that's what we're going to do. And to me, that's, that's the important thing that I wanted to get across and hopefully did. Woody it's an amazing story it is like you say it's a snapshot of just less than a hundred people on D-Day in the midst of hundreds of thousands of people trying to get their shit done and it's exceptional and we love it tell people again what it's called I'm going to put a link um, on the podcast website so people can click straight through and buy it well, it's called Angels of Mercy, uh, two screaming eagle medics in Angavilla plan on D-Day. And, and it, interestingly, that wasn't my choice for the title. Um, no. Uh, it, was, it was given to me by the mayor of the village, um, mm. who had been so helpful in getting it because, um, and I'll do that story briefly, then I'll shut up. Um, no, no, keep going. People, in, people love it. There were, there were two twin brother doctors who wandered the Mediterranean during Roman era. And they, they gave treatment to people regardless of their faith, color, creed, and this, that, and the other. And because they crossed borders and what have you, they were eventually arrested by the Romans and they were killed, possibly crucified for their, for, for, um, being Christians. Um, a few other years later, Emperor Justinian, a now Christian emperor is, is dying of some ailment that no one can determine what it is. And he prays and two angels descend from the heavens and they save him and he had them uh, sainted. And they are Saints Cosmos and Damien, who are big in the Orthodox faith and they're in Catholic mm. faith as well. And hundreds of years ago, and no one knows exactly when, let's say 600 years ago, the church in Angavilla plan was dedicated to these, these two angels. Uh, it's the only church in France I've ever found that's dedicated to Saints uh, Cosmos and, and Damien, or Com in French. There's a Saint Com du Mont just down the road from Angerville. Mm. So Com Cosmos, same same dude. And when I was doing the book, Daniel the Mayor um, said this, but this church was already visited by two angels who descended from the heavens to save someone, Cosmos and Damien. And on D Day, two more angels descended from the heavens, paratroopers, Bob and Ken. And uh, you must call it Angels of Mercy. So all right, yep, yeah, okay, fine, <laughs> fine. Because <laughs> as you know, titles are. Yeah, they're difficult to the last and... the last thing you give a crap about when you're trying to write a whole book isn't it so you know and and and, and some people like that whole religious element of the f- connection mm. and what have you and and i put a few of those bits in the book there's it was it, the, the church is on the crusader route as well so there are there are knights hospitalier crosses inside the church which is another connection with medicine and medics and, and i put that in the book as well to flesh it out i mean it, it's not it's not doesn't float my boat the religious side of things but no. i understand some people it does and and it, for the villagers it was very important part of the story so I, and i put some of the civilian stories and some of the civilian casualties who died and when you go there now there's like there's three names on the war monument of civilians because for a village of 40 you're not going to get more than three yeah but the but the three stories are in are in the book again because you know that's it's part of the village you know? and so i, I fleshed that one one was a 10 year old girl who, who died on a booby trap just after d-day by pulling on a bit of parachute cord thinking it was a bit of going to pull out a bit of parachute silk to make some underwear or something and it wasn't it was a german booby trap and a grenade went off and she was killed um, it just like you say, we've said it already. I love that you've got the civilian side of it as well, and that it is the entire story of that village, and it's not just sort of like yeah the English language version of it, which is great. Um, what would you have called it? Oh, I don't know. 
Um, oh, I thought you had something in no, your head. No, no, I, 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 never, I never had to think of anything. I, I probably yeah. would have used Geronimo because Geronimo was a nickname of the 501st. So I probably would have, you know, the, uh, Geronimo's War or something or the uh, Geronimo Aid Station or something. I don't know. But yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have gone with Angels and Mercy. And interestingly, the difficult thing for me is because I called it rather pretentiously the Normandy Chronicles Volume 1. I had this intention to do a Volume 2 and Volume 3. And there are various ideas have come and gone. And uh, But the thing is, when you've done a really what I think is a really good story, finding a second follow-up is really hard. And the other ideas I thought about never kind of came to fruition. So yeah, when people say, is, it, is there a volume two? No, there is, there is as yet I, no I volume I just two. assumed you were lazy and hadn't bothered. <laughs> well, there's that, there's that as well. Yeah, no, I mean, that, there, there is that, um, you know, because yeah, but I just never, sometimes you find that one story and you go, mm. yeah, that's, that's it. And I was lucky enough to find that one story and, and it was, it was a, a pleasure to write not to edit we all hate the editing don't yes. we? but the, the, the writing was great and and um and it and it, and it opened doors for me and and it's still selling i self-published and it's it's sold you know three or four thousand copies over the years so it's done all right for a little mm. independent book um so i'm happy enough with it but well there'll definitely be some more after this goes out uh, as i say i'm going to put the link on the podcast website underneath the description so people can go straight well, there and buy it and we must get together soon and do some more tv stuff they were great fun yeah no definitely i mean you know because we've we've both you and i have both come out of the annalena of course come out of this whole year with with new directions in our careers that we didn't know we were going to go down particular paths and uh it's it's been an extraordinary year and um yeah we, we we had lots of plans that some of them happened and some of them didn't but yeah we should we should do more things because there's lots of avenues um i think that we could get involved in brilliant well, we look forward to it thanks so much woody well no it's my pleasure i haven't i, I haven't had to tell <laughs> i haven't told this normally i'd have told it like 120 times yeah. by now this is like the second time this year i did it another thing around june so it's a pleasure to go and tell some other stories and and, and if anyone watch it, listening, uh, you know, please visit the church when you can travel again, because it, it, it's an amazing place with the, say, the blood stains and the impacts there. And there's an information panel just outside the church that tells you the story um, that I, I, I contributed the text of. So you can kind of go there and understand it. And it's a, it's it, what the reason it works is you can see it all happening you can sit you can stand that church and you can picture the the the, the medics coming in the, the the door you can see where the wounded there were because you can see the blood stains and it's easy to take on board uh, you know yeah. picturing huge invasions and and movements it's very hard to, to relate to that and so it's an amazing place and it's 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 it, i'm a, i'm a, i'm a, i'm a, i'm an atheist but i'm 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 least i'm less of an atheist when i'm in that church i feel maybe there's something going on that i don't know about you know yeah. <laughs> anyway i'll stop rambling join us tomorrow and tim reynolds will be with us to talk all about the origins of modern man this is brilliant so we had um matt pope on to talk about neanderthals and now we're going to talk about our own subspecies and we're going to talk about the differences similarities uh, and fill in some more prehistory for you so don't miss it don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 